Today's episode is brought to you by Tarte Cosmetics. Tarte makeup, skincare, and beauty products are made with high-performance natural ingredients. Welcome to Skim This. It's been a historic week in the fight against COVID-19. Hopefully, you've seen the photos of the first people in the UK to receive a newly approved Pfizer vaccine, including 90-year-old Margaret Keenan and a man named William Shakespeare, who's 81 years old, not a 456-year-old playwright. On this side of the pond, Canada has approved the Pfizer vaccine too. And today, a panel of independent scientists is expected to recommend that the FDA approve the Pfizer vaccine for Americans. If that happens, people could start getting vaccinated across the US within days. We're gonna lay our emotions on the table here and say this news is worth celebrating and feels like the light at the end of a very long tunnel. But approving a vaccine and successfully rolling one out aren't the same thing. We've got the story on the challenges ahead and you'll wanna bring out your winter coat for this one. Speaking of needing to button up, we've got the details on which windows to open if you're trying to stay safe in a rideshare when social distancing isn't possible. But first, we've got two quick updates on whether we're ever getting another $1,200 check in the mail and what to watch out for when the Electoral College meets on Monday. Oh, and a rapid fire one minute explainer on what it means when DoorDash and Airbnb have their IPOs. All right, let's do it. This coming Monday is a big day. The likely end of a stressful major news story that since November 3rd, just hasn't gone away. I think the final step is gonna happen on Monday and that is December 14th. That's Elaine Kmark. She's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and an expert on U.S. elections. And she's watching Monday's meeting of the Electoral College closely. It's when electors, who are usually chosen by state political parties, formally cast their votes for president. Those results are then sealed up and delivered to Congress, where they're opened up and counted about three weeks later, on January 6th, the date Congress finally certifies the election results. This really outdated and not very transparent way that presidents are elected dates back to the 1700s. There are calls to change that system every few years, but most of the time, once election day is over and the results are in, people move on and start focusing on something else. Well, not this year. Tonight, President Trump remains intent on using his executive power to overturn the results of this year's election. He is still showing no signs of conceding anytime soon. This election was rigged and we can't let that happen. This election has to be turned around. The reason Monday's meeting of the Electoral College is so significant is because President Trump has been contesting the election results in battleground states. Trump's lawyers have tried to get certain ballots excluded from the vote count, which by and large hasn't worked. Then they try to block some states from certifying election results. But that hasn't worked either. And by now, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Nevada have all certified their results with Biden winning each contest. Kmart told us Trump's last possible option at this point is to get swing state electors to ignore their own state certifications and flip their vote. Faithless electors, that's what they're called. Trump might be hoping that a lot of these faithless electors break away. Though Kmart says there are rules already in place that can make that impossible. Most of the states in the union have a state law that says the electors have to vote for the person who is certified as the winner of the state. 
And those laws make it pretty likely Monday's kinda routine meeting of electors isn't gonna turn into a big election redo, leaving us with only one last thing to check off on our election to-do list. And we're checking it twice. This is finally, finally over in January when Congress counts the votes. At that point, you know, there is a president, officially a president-elect, a vice president-elect. They will take office a few weeks later, but they're elected at that point. Even if Monday's meeting isn't full of surprises, Kmark says that's not to say there won't be stories playing out elsewhere including around the buildings where electoral college meetings generally take place. If the electors actually go to the state capitals, as they usually do, I suspect there will be demonstrations. I mean, I think that's what's going to happen. I think there'll be demonstrations and protests. We've already seen some pretty scary stuff, like people with guns surrounding the house of the Michigan Secretary of State, who's the one who certified Biden's win in that state, and protesting and banging tin cans and screaming, stop the steal and stuff like that. And that's a little scary. I wouldn't be surprised if some of these electors are hassled in some way or threatened. There's also the X factor of how President Trump responds to the Electoral College's moves. Though again, Kmark says he's pretty much out of options. Assuming that every elector votes for the person that they were supposed to vote for, I can't see how this thing gets turned around. Next up, we wanted to talk about something in Washington, D.C. that's apparently pretty much impossible to do. Passing a second coronavirus relief bill. If it feels like ages since Congress did something meaningful to try and help out Americans struggling to respond to the pandemic, you're not wrong. The CARES Act, Congress's one big aid package, passed way back in March. The deal included direct cash payments to Americans, $600 a week on top of state unemployment insurance, new unemployment support for freelancers, money for airlines and hospitals and child nutrition programs, along with grants and forgivable loans for small businesses and provisions to help out people with student loans. But since then, well, there hasn't been much of anything. Leading some newscasters like CNBC's Shepard Smith to let their frustration boil over. You know, when a hurricane strikes in the Gulf South, the government rushes to help. When fires ravage California, the government steps in. We're nine months into the biggest health crisis and resulting financial crisis in 100 years, and the federal government has done nothing for the victims in 257 days. As of today, that number is actually 258 days. And time is running out for anything more to get done this year. The Senate is heading out of D.C. for its holiday break next week. So is there any chance something can be done? We should say, over and over, it's looked like a deal might be within reach. Like in early October. No deal yet, but they are still talking. Mid-October. Stimulus negotiations are expected to resume today on Capitol Hill. Mid-November. We're going to try to get something done. And just last weekend. There is momentum. Compromise is within reach. So what's going on here? There are a lot of sticking points keeping Democrats and Republicans from finding common ground, though two in particular are causing the most disagreement. 
The first is whether to treat this bill like a short-term fix or like the kind of deal that only comes around every 250-something days. Progressive Democrats and, we should add, one Republican have been pushing for more $1,200 checks for Americans. After all, it's been a while since the last checks were sent out. But others, including moderate Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia, are taking a different approach, saying there's going to be a new sheriff in town pretty soon, so we can afford to do a little less. This is not a do-all, end-all. Joe Biden says this is a down payment. He comes in as our president in January. He'll put basically another package to take us out of this mess that we have. We've got to bridge that gap. That's all we're trying to do. The other issue dividing Congress is over legal liability for businesses and governments operating during the pandemic. Since the spring, various groups have been pressuring Congress to create a law shielding companies, hospitals, and schools from legal responsibility if their employees or customers catch COVID. They're particularly worried about lawsuits from people who allege business owners, hospitals, or schools should have taken better health precautions. Republican legislation would make those lawsuits more challenging, so long as reasonable health precautions were taken. But Democrats, like Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, argue that, with COVID infections still climbing, employers need to be, quote, more vigilant, not less. One top Senate Republican, John Cornyn of Texas, has said one potential way out of this gridlock is to force everyone to compromise. By putting individual provisions that Democrats and Republicans like and don't like into one big bill and saying, take it or leave it. But ending 2020 with a bipartisan breakthrough is no guarantee. After all, once Congress has waited 258 days to pass another COVID relief bill, some members might be thinking, what's another day? Got a minute? There was some big news this week about companies, including some quarantine favorites, Airbnb and DoorDash, going public with their IPOs and breaking records in the process. The crowding moment of a record year of initial public offerings is upon us. Two big names set to trade this week, Airbnb and DoorDash, slated to be among the top five biggest U.S. IPOs for the year. What's going on here? I mean, I guess there's just an incredible appetite right now uh, for hot, sexy IPOs. Yeah, sure, if that's your thing. So WTF is an IPO. Here's the answer in 60 seconds. IPO stands for Initial Public Offering, and it's when a company goes from private ownership to public ownership. It's like a company's world premiere on a stock exchange, where investors can buy shares and essentially own part of a company. One main reason companies go public is to raise capital, because people buying up stock generally leads to more cash in that company's piggy bank, allowing it to invest in the business or pay off debt. IPOs can also be a major status booster for companies, but not everyone goes as planned. There's nothing to stop companies from dropping in value once they go public. And while pre-IPO hype can be great for attracting investors and raising the price of a company's stock, going public also means companies have to air out their laundry, making public disclosures about how healthy their business really is, which can be good or bad. Two of the companies that IPO'd this week, Airbnb and DoorDash, have definitely benefited from pandemic hype. But whether going public or staying private is the right move for either, only time will tell. How'd we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. We may not go to work every day, 
or hit happy hours or brunch like we used to. But we are Zooming, FaceTiming, TikToking, and staying connected. So it's still important to look and feel our best. Enter Tarte Cosmetics. Cruelty-free makeup made with natural ingredients. Start with their bestsellers, like the Concealer Shape Tape. It'll give you full coverage for up to 16 hours. Head to TarteCosmetics.com to get camera ready. That's Tarte, T-A-R-T-E, Cosmetics, C-O-S-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com. Okay, at the top of the show, we told you about the big news this week about Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, as regulators on both sides of the Atlantic start approving it for distribution. But getting that vaccine from Pfizer's labs to your arm isn't a straight shot. The vaccine still has a long journey ahead and has to clear some pretty major hurdles. The world's toughest obstacle course. There are three main obstacles the vaccine has to overcome before it actually makes its way to a human. To help explain, we called up Wendy Zuckerman, and I'm the host and EP of Science Versus, podcast from Gimlet Media. Zuckerman is a science journalist, and she told us the first major challenge in the great vaccine obstacle course is temperature. The Pfizer vaccine needs to be cold. It needs to be so, so cold. And it needs to be cold for quite a while. Pfizer's vaccine actually needs the thermostat turned all the way down to negative 70 degrees Celsius, or negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit. That's colder than winter in Antarctica and definitely way colder than the freezer in your apartment. The reason the vaccine needs to be stored that way is because of the technology Pfizer used to create it, mRNA. Freshman biopop quiz, that's messenger RNA. mRNA, which is the basis for the Pfizer vaccine, is very unstable. mRNA is supposed to be in a body, your body, uh, a virus's body. It's not evolutionarily designed to be out in the world. And so one way that scientists just sort of slow down the process of degradation is just to make things very, very cold. Pfizer's labs may be perfectly equipped to feel like the South Pole, but the vaccines still need to make their way around the world without overheating. So this vaccine's obstacle course goes back pretty much right to the point when it's made. It needs to go from the factory. The mRNA will be put in in its little sort of capsule. Then it'll be put into glass tubes. Um, the glass tubes obviously can't have any cracks in them. Um, they can't have any faults in them at all. They have to be labeled correctly. And it's boring stuff like labeling that one academic from Harvard was like, things go wrong with labeling. Think about like Jim in finance who gets labeling wrong. That happens in pharmaceuticals as well. Yeah, seriously, come on, Jim and finance. Then it needs to go onto the trucks. They need to have these specialized refrigeration capabilities. So this is not your freezer at home. This is not even a kind of freezer that a lot of labs have. These trucks, lots of refrigeration capacity going into hospitals, doctors' offices all around the country. You think about your local doctor where you get your measles vaccination or you get your yellow fever vaccination they're not going to have these specialized refrigerators so they're either going to need to get them or we're going to have to have like vaccine hotspots where everyone will just like go and stand in line and they're going to be the places that are equipped 
Basically, everywhere from the trucks carrying the vaccine to your doctor's office will need to have special sub-zero capabilities. BTW, Pfizer knows it's pretty unusual to have an ultra-cold freezer on hand, so they're producing some transportable thermal boxes that can store the vaccine for up to 10 days. Still, that may not be enough. People in the medical community have raised concerns about the cost of these special freezers and said, some hospitals, especially rural ones that have been struggling financially this year, may not be able to afford them. And even if price isn't an issue, these containers, which will store between 1,000 and 5,000 doses of Pfizer vaccines, can only be opened twice a day and for no more than three minutes each time. Longer than that, and the vaccines could get too warm. So temperature is the first major hurdle in the great vaccine obstacle course. It has to stay cold for a really long time, and that's way trickier than it sounds. But let's say our vaccine gets labeled properly, is in a freezer box on a truck, and is transported to a special cold chamber within a hospital or nursing home. So far, so good. All right, here we go. Gotta, gotta, gotta go fast, gotta go fast. We've reached our next challenge, finding enough people who want to receive it so that the U.S. can reach herd immunity. Seems like that shouldn't be an issue, right? You know, global pandemic, over a million deaths, no cure, and then all of a sudden a vaccine. Finally, right? Well, not everyone's on board. In order to reach what's called herd immunity, when a whole community is protected from the spread of a disease, it's estimated that 60 to 70% of a country's population has to become immune. That can happen either through vaccination or infection. But hitting that herd immunity threshold requires a huge portion of the public to get vaccinated. And lately, there's been a lot of concern that not enough Americans will show up. Back in September, a Pew Research survey found close to half of respondents said they wouldn't get a COVID vaccine if it were available to them. I know there's been a lot of surveys showing very high rates of people who are not interested, who are scared of taking the coronavirus vaccine. But as time passes, people seem to be warming up to getting vaccinated. In a November follow-up, Pew found that the number of people who said that they wouldn't get an available vaccine had dropped to below 40%. I think that number's gonna go down. Because truly, when they did a bunch of these surveys, we didn't have any data on this vaccine. So obviously, even if you ask me, super pro-vaccine, I love them. I you know, have posters and t-shirts with Wendy Loves Vaccines on them. But if I didn't have any data on what the side effects were and what the efficacy was, and you asked me, you're gonna take a coronavirus vaccine? I'd say, ah, uh, I'm gonna wait for some data first. And time helps. Because as people watch other people getting vaccinated, they might be more willing to do the same. The truth is, is we're not gonna have a lot of these vaccines. You know, I'm not gonna be able to get my vaccine in the next two weeks. So people are gonna have time to get comfortable with this vaccine as well. Here's the thing. The government and the healthcare system can't wait for people to change their minds about the vaccine. And they need to get out there and start assuring the public that the vaccine is safe starting with making sure people have access to accurate information about the vaccine and how to get one. And a good old photo op can't hurt either. Former presidents Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama have all volunteered to get vaccinated on camera to prove it's safe. Those efforts are all working towards one goal, making sure the public has enough trust in the vaccine to hit that 60 to 70% herd immunity rate. Which brings us to our last hurdle. This season, the stakes are even higher. And here we go! And 
unfortunately, this challenge makes the job of convincing people to show up for one vaccination look kind of easy by comparison. He's made all the right moves on this course. So here comes another big drop. Because for the Pfizer vaccine to be effective, it has to be distributed in two doses. And people can't get those doses at the same time. You've actually got to wait a few weeks in between. Which is a problem, because while people might be lining up to get that first dose, they may not come around for the second. Because just like every time you think about doing your laundry or cleaning out your closet, life is a problem. It gets in the way. And people tend to not go back for their second shot. And Zuckerman told us there's evidence for this. Adults are a little crappier at this. So we looked at the hepatitis A vaccine, for example, and there was this big study out of the UK that found that 10% of the adults in this survey, and it was a large survey, maybe you know, hundreds of thousands of people, but 10% went back for their second shot. That's right. In that instance, only 10% of people went back for that second shot. You also saw it with um, the HPV vaccine. This is to prevent cervical cancer. And again, this is a shot where adults need to get a first, second, and then third shot. And you, you see reduced numbers the more times people have to go back. And it doesn't take a rocket science to work out why. Going to the doctor is a pain in the ass. Going back, you're like, well, I already got one. Won't that be enough? And the truth is, that's not how these vaccines are designed. You may have seen that Pfizer's COVID vaccine is over 90% effective, which is great. But that number only applies if you get it twice. Only get it once though, and that drops to closer to 50% effective. So people's hesitation about getting two visits to get their vaccine could mean this vaccine rollout isn't as effective in practice as it sounds on paper. Though Zuckerman told us there's one way to keep people from treating their vaccine reminder emails as spam. Incentives. It's also very possible that you're going to start seeing travel restrictions. For example, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to want to go home to Australia and they are already talking about having needing to have a stamp that says I got my coronavirus vaccine. So with an impetus like that around, I'm definitely going to get my second shot. That's right. Getting that second dose could be your passport to getting back to the things you love, like traveling to see family, which hopefully means a lot more people will make that second appointment. So what's the skim? The fact that we're even at the vaccine approval stage is a big deal and means we've reached a record-breaking milestone. Drop the mic. History was made. But while we cleared that major hurdle this week, vaccines still have a long and treacherous journey to go to make it from Pfizer's lab to your arm. That obstacle course involves a lot of labeling, insanely cold temperatures, reminders about second appointments, and finally, a big push to make sure that enough people trust and commit to getting the vaccine in the first place. The good news on all these fronts is there are a lot of people, from pharmaceutical companies to healthcare professionals to the government, thinking through how to solve those challenges and getting a vaccine to every American who wants one. Some states, like New Jersey, are hopeful that as early as April, any resident that wants a vaccine should be able to get one, while some other states are setting less ambitious expectations. And in the meantime, you can help slow the spread of COVID by doing what we already know works, washing your hands and wearing a mask. To stay up to date each morning on the status of the COVID vaccine rollout, subscribe to our newsletter, The Daily Skim at theskim.com. Before we go today, we wanna to talk 
about getting in a car during COVID. If for whatever reason, you haven't been able to avoid catching an Uber this year, it might have occurred to you that you're pretty close to a stranger right now. And not just any stranger, someone who's been driving around with a lot of other strangers. Can I get you a water? <coughs> Do you want a water? <coughs> uh, no thanks. And so that window button just a few inches away starts to look pretty tempting. Hey, mind if I roll this down? This probably isn't a surprise. If you're in a car in COVID times with someone who's not in your pod, rolling down the windows, any windows, is a good idea. The more windows that are open, the more fresh air you get. That's Kenny Breuer. He's a professor of engineering at Brown University and specializes in fluid mechanics. Basically, how air flows. Back in March or April, we were in lockdown and we were wondering when we could get back in a car with someone. I did a very simple experiment first uh, with my wife driving and me in the back seat and just a, a little piece of cotton thread on a stuck to the end of a pencil. Computer simulations eventually replaced pencils and cotton. And now, Breuer's team has some answers about how to try and stay safe in a tiny car interior. Here's what they found. No surprise here, keeping all the windows closed isn't smart. Car interiors are really small spaces, and unless you're in the third row of a Chevy Tahoe, putting six feet between you and the driver is gonna be tricky. So it's time to start opening windows. How many? Breuer says you could try one, but you probably won't enjoy that. In fact, if you just open one window and you're driving, oftentimes you will feel this kind of pulsation, this very unpleasant throbbing due to the fact that the air is trying to go in and out of the same window. Instead, to be as safe as possible, open as many windows as possible, even if just a crack. And if your car has one, there's one window that rules them all. A moonroof is a huge sort of suction um, port, so that would just suck everything out. But if there's no moonroof, it's too cold to put every window down, or you're a bit uncomfortable asking your driver to open all the windows, Breuer says his research identified a pretty good middle ground. If you have to open just two windows and you're the passenger and you're most concerned about your exposure, then the non-intuitive result was that the thing to do is not to open the driver and the passenger window, but to open the opposite two windows, the window behind the driver and the window in front of the passenger. To repeat that, if you're in the back seat on the right side, as in the seat you usually get into in an Uber, open the window opposite you, to your left, and then have the driver open the window across from them on the right side of the car. That was a surprise to us. What that does is it sets up this airflow where you get this air that comes in from the rear left window and kind of sweeps across the passenger and then out the front window. And so it almost creates a curtain, an air curtain, protecting the passenger from the rest of the car. And whether it's protecting against COVID or creating a buffer against the sound of your driver's radio, or the smell of whatever's being eaten in the front seat, a curtain of protective air sounds pretty nice until you get where you need to go. Phew. 
COVID-19 has caused us to get real with our personal finances, regardless of our situations. Well, we've got great news. You're not alone. The Jill on Money podcast, hosted by CBS News business analyst and certified financial planner Jill Schlesinger, takes the mystery out of your financial life and holds your hand through these volatile times. Finally, a money podcast that isn't scary or boring. It's useful and, dare we say, fun. Check out Jill on Money on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next Thursday. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 